the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Wednesday, August 9th, 2023. I'm Seth Leaps, and I've got uh, Mr. Bill to my north, and I have got David Dahl to my west. For everyone else around the Cardinal Points, 602-508-0960. It doesn't mean you just have to be in the east or the south. You can also be in the north or the west to give us a call, 602-5080-960. They're just in my line of sight. I was making the point yesterday that as worried as I was, and we all should be, regarding the military of China and any incursions, military surveillance, or for that matter, invasions, we should also be worried about importing and inviting China's ideology here. The political philosopher Leo Strauss issued this concern vis-a-vis socialist thought in the 1950s when he wrote, quote, Now would not be the first time that a nation defeated on the battlefield and, as it were, annihilated as a political being, has deprived its conqueror of the most sublime fruit of victory by imposing on him the yoke of its own thought. Close quote. His point was that though we defeated National Socialism abroad uh, five years earlier, we were slowly importing their very thought here, nihilism. They had not... We had not deprived them of the victory of denying their thought being imposed on us, though we defeated them militarily. We might have said the exact same thing in 1989, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, though we may have defeated Soviet-style Marxism militarily and as a political entity in Europe, the ideology ran increasingly deep here with an adherence that was ever-growing, particularly in our universities. Soviet-style Marxism is out. Primarily because Russia is now seen as a thing of the right, which is a misunderstanding of things, but there it is. But most Maoist Marxism is in, and they are imposing their thought on us, not we on them. I remember the permanent normal trade relations debates of the 1990s, and one of the most salient and also ignored warnings at the time came from Gary Bauer, who put it that his concern in our open trading policies with China was that they would change us more than that we would change them. How could it be otherwise? China has a strong and hardened belief in their formative and foundational ideology. All we do is destroy our own. First, let us make no mistake about what China is. They tell us right up front in their constitution's preamble, quote, the success of China's socialist cause have been achieved by the Chinese people of all nationalities under the leadership of the Communist Party of China and the guidance of Marxism-Leninism and Mao Zedong thought, close quote. Just so the point doesn't get forgotten, again in the Constitution of China's preamble, a second time we get this, quote, under the leadership of the Communist Party of China and the guidance of Marxism-Leninism and Mao Zedong thought, the Chinese people of all nationalities will continue to adhere to the people's democratic dictatorship and follow the socialist road, close quote. So why do I say I worry about them exporting their ideology or our eager, too eager importation of it? Well, just look at the Cultural Revolution in China under Mao 
and what is taking place in America. As Dr. Forrest Marion has written, quote, in recent years, indoctrination and anti-American propaganda has spread from numerous universities to public schools in America. The indoctrination of children under critical race theory's influence in the last several years reminded one C. Van Fleet, a survivor of the Cultural Revolution, of what she witnessed growing up in Mao's China. The communist regime, she wrote, used the same critical theory to divide people there. The only difference is that they used class instead of race. This is indeed the American version of the Chinese Cultural Revolution we are witnessing now, she writes. Close quote. In a 1973 article in Asian Survey, an academic journal published by the University of California at Berkeley, not exactly a conservative stronghold then or now, the author described Chinese corrective labor camps' methods of inmates' thought reform this way, quote, repeated minor problems can lead to cadre warnings and to a demand that the inmate in question write a self-examination essay, Chin Tao Chu, confessing his failings, close quote. Who will deny that American universities and other, other institutions now practice this concept in the form of so-called white privilege and other exercises, confessing our failings? In another Asian survey piece, Juliana Pennington Hazlett wrote, quote, bands of these young rebels robed Chinese cities, destroying ancient relics, accosting citizens wearing Western or bourgeois clothing styles, and renaming buildings and streets, the East is red, Tung Feng Hung, close quote. Note, although rebels against civilization, they were doing the bidding of the constituted authorities. Who will disagree that countless American citizens, cities, universities, and other institutions, including reviled, defunded police departments whose officers risk their lives daily attempting to maintain law and order, have experienced similar treatment at the hands of naming and renaming commissions, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, or other poisonous entities? In the Cultural Revolution, Mao Zedong tried to rid China of what were known as the Four olds, old ideas, old culture, old customs, old habits. Per a recent New York Times book review, under Xi Jinping, China's top leader, quote, efforts to suppress history have intensified with troubling implications for the political health of the country at a time when it looms larger than ever on the world stage. High school textbooks in China now reduce the cultural revolution to just a few short paragraphs, and the country... As a result, quote, is ethically hollow with a numb passivity, an absence of conscience, a sickness of the soul. The moral decline there is more of a severe problem than poverty or crime, close quote. Could be something being written about America, couldn't it? By the way, one of the olds was femininity and the effort to erase it, as Professor K. Ann Johnson put it. Think of those old Mao uniforms as but one of many symbols and efforts. Erasing the distinction of sexes. What Mao wanted was the adoption of what was called universal masculinity. Now think about the transgender movement here, and things become curiouser and curiouser, don't they? All of this comes to us as important for two even more important reasons. One, it is a whitewashing of the poisonousness, the toxic the toxicity of the Mao Marxism that is receiving increased celebration and sanction here in America, especially among our youth and promulgated in the media at our youth. Two, it is or should be instructive to us as to what happens to a country that propagandizes and nullifies its own history. In short, it is the two fires from different directions that lead us to the place we are in now, right here. Two, ethically hollow, with a numb passivity, 
and an absence of conscience that is in fact worse than poverty and crime because among other things, those are the very gasolines that lead to such social problems as poverty and crime, not the other way around. Now, the interesting thing about our education wars here, our textbook wars here, as is the case of the textbook propagandization in China, is that they both come from the same direction, opposition to capitalism, animated by neo-Marxism and iconoclastic of our old ideas and culture, like freedom, equality, and American or Western greatness. Think about replacing 1619 for 1776. Think about our awful American history scores. Think about the aggressive antagonism towards rooting out critical race theory in our history books, in our elementary and high schools. Surprise, surprise that all such fuels and animations lead to the apathy I've been lamenting here, or the acedia, or as Pamela Paul puts it, ethical hollowness with a numb passivity, an absence of conscience, a sickness of the soul impregnating so much of our society. China is indeed a major military and economic threat we need to fight, but it is also an ideological one, and that threat needs to be fought just as hard not imported, not adopted. But importation and adoption is what we are gauging in, knowingly or not, from our destruction of olds, which is to say our history to customs and habits, which is to say our attachments to nature, as in the binary male-female distinctions, among others. We can go on this way, on the path to increased nihilism, where there are no historical records or standards, a la Orwell, or historical truths, and narratives a la Stalin and Mao. But we'd better be prepared as to what ends that all leads to. We know where it led the USSR, though that history is being whitewashed by U.S. politicians, including a powerful U.S. senator who's twice nearly won the Democratic nomination for the presidency. We know where it has led China, or at least some of us know. That most of us don't know, be it the concentration camps or the repression, is itself frightening. But for those of us who do know, it is incumbent we never cease speaking about it nor ignoring the important fact that it actually can happen here. And frankly, slowly and surely, it is. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-5080-960. We'll be right back. Scott Johnson writes, the House Oversight Committee has released a third Biden bank memo detailing new information obtained in the committee's investigation into the Biden family's influence peddling schemes. The committee has now identified over $20 million in payments from foreign sources to the Biden family and their business associates. That's $20 million and counting. From the press release, quote, the memorandum outlines how the Bidens and their business associates received millions from oligarchs in Russia, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine during Joe Biden's vice presidency. After Hunter Biden received millions of dollars in payments, then-Vice President Joe Biden dined with his son's foreign associates in Washington, D.C. Devin Archer, Hunter Biden's former business partner, recently testified that then-Vice President Joe Biden was, quote-unquote, the brand, sold to enrich the Biden family and was used to send signals of access, power, and influence. During Joe Biden's vice presidency, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden sold himself as – sold – Joe Biden as the brand to reap millions from oligarchs in these countries. It appears no real services were provided other than access to the Biden network, including Joe Biden himself. And Hunter Biden seems to have delivered. 
This is made clear by meals in Georgetown, where then-Vice President Joe Biden dined with the oligarchs from around the world who had sent money to his son. It's clear Joe Biden knew about his son's business dealings and allowed himself to be the brand sold to enrich the family while he was vice president of the United States. The House Oversight Committee will continue to follow the money trail and obtain witness testimony to determine whether foreign actors targeted the Bidens, President Biden is compromised or corrupt, and our national security is threatened. Scott Johnson says maybe someone will make something of this one of these days. You won't get it over at CNN. You won't get it at The Washington Post. You won't get it at The New York Times. And meanwhile, if it's not corruption that isn't being reported, there's an ongoing decline. I mean, we we spoke about this a little bit yesterday, but I didn't realize the enormity of it until I heard the actual audio of it today. This was Joe Biden yesterday. Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon, one of the Earth's nine wonders, wonders of the world, literally. Think of that. That's that use of that word, literally. Literally, he will attach it to almost anything. And usually when he does, he doesn't mean literally. But that just means that Joe Biden either doesn't know what he's talking about or is lying every time he uses that word. Now, I don't think there's any real reason to lie about the nine wonders of the world. But when he attaches the word literally to something that everyone, the moment they heard it, knew was simply wrong must tell you that there's something wrong with Joe Biden. There was a worse moment for Joe Biden yesterday, and it was in an interview he was doing with, of all people, um, the Weather Channel. Let's see if I have it right here. One second. Protect migrants. Who might be- yes, the question is about protecting migrants who are crossing the border fleeing extreme weather in their countries. Look, I think the, the United States should do everything it can to help people who are in desperate need have no other means of help. And we've always done that. It is not our, it, it is just who we are. We're the United States of America. And the idea to begrudge the ability to, for example, one of the things we're doing is we're providing for changing the environment the the physical structures in the countries which they come from so they don't have so they have better lighting they have more secure uh, for example you have all so many lead pipes all across America and throughout the country you have 440,000 schools you turn on the water fountain and you may have lead in the water you get that do you get that let's take it from the top again is it the responsibility of the U.S. to protect migrants who might be fleeing extreme weather in their countries? Look, I think the, the United States should do everything it can to help people who are in desperate need have no other means of help. And we've always done that. It is not our, it, it is just who we are. We're the United States of America. And the idea to begrudge the ability to, for example, one of the things we're doing is we're providing for changing the environment. The, the, the physical structures in the countries which they come from. So they don't have, so they have better lighting. They have more secure, uh, for example, you have all so many lead pipes all across America and throughout the country. You have 440,000 schools. So the question about migrants and the humanitarian ways we might care for migrants in the United States um, leads him to talk about improving the lighting 
in the countries from which the migrants are coming from. And then he talks about, for instance, there are lead pipes in 400,000 schools in America. I don't know what synapse fires to get you from the problem of migrants to a, for instance, about lead water in 400,000 schools in America. There aren't 400,000 schools in America, not public schools anyway, which is I'm sure what he's talking about or somehow thinking about. There's about 100,000 public schools in America. I looked this up, by the way, this 400,000 figure up. This is the least problematic part of this answer, by the way. But I looked it up, and uh, he's used it before, and the story says that no one in the White House can substantiate where that number comes from. No one in the White House can substantiate how he gets to 400,000 schools with lead water in their pipes. And again, there aren't 400,000 schools in America. But that's not the biggest part of the problem. The biggest part of the problem is asked about the humanitarian needs of migrants, what we would call illegal immigrants, but, you know, we deal with the mainstream media here, migrants. He says, well, for instance— we have lead water problems in 400,000 schools in America. It's a complete and total disconnect. He's not able to follow the question, and he doesn't know what the answer is that he's giving, and the answer that he is giving is chock full of factual inaccuracies. Now, I don't know if the Washington Post or the AP fact checkers will touch this one or touch it with a 10-foot pole, but I think it's important for us to know that this is the commander-in-chief of the free world. This is the commander-in-chief of the United States of America. This is the man that we are depending on. This is the man that we are counting on to lead not only our national security and defense, but any necessary and potential and, God forbid, wartime cabinet. This is the man who other nations are watching speak as well. That clip probably won't make it onto PBS. That clip probably won't make it onto NBC or CBS or CNN. But I'll tell you where it does make it. It makes it into the briefings in Russia. It makes it into the briefings of Xi Jinping in China. It makes it to the briefings of every world leader throughout the universe. And we're just going on as if there's nothing to see here. There's a lot to see here. None of it good. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Dombrowski is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. It's a cheerful, wonderful website, and it's a good way to reach out to him. He gives us our culture and economy update. John, happy Wednesday. Hey, Seth. How you doing? I'm doing just fine, sir. I'm doing just fine. I don't know how the average American is doing. You and I were kind of... Mm. Looking at a report earlier today, I guess it's out of the New York Federal Reserve. Total household debt has increased to seventeen over seventeen trillion dollars, and credit card balances yeah. have risen to over one trillion dollars. This is yeah. uh, this is frightening. Yeah, I mean, there's a variety of different types of debt that we can all accumulate. Credit card debt, I think we've talked about this many times, is probably one of the worst. Uh, because of the interest rates that the consumer is being charged. Uh, many people are aware of that. Unfortunately, they feel they have to 
use the credit cards, though, to obviously pay bills or whatever it may be. Uh, but I really, really believe that uh, whatever someone can do to try to uh, limit, you know, having these high balances on their credit card is going to only improve their life over a long period of time. Yeah, John. Um, I don't know if it's going to get better or worse, though, in the immediate future. It seems to me that, I mean, first of all, I don't know if credit cards are going to be issued as easily as they used to be. But I don't know for those that are current holders of them if they're going to start retracting on this, just the given given the tides of the economy right now. Well, and actually, um, you know, if we look at inflation, it's doubling at a, you know, it's, it's doubling the uh, the rate of inflation, right. credit card debt. Yeah. So, uh, we're which doesn't help, right? We right. we would is outpacing credit card debt because people are spending less. Right. But what we're finding is the inflation is kind of having this reverse effect. People are spending more in many cases because they have to. They can't, uh, you know, get around, uh, you know, the higher prices for just about everything right now. So it, it really is a catch-22 for a lot of people, and it's really uh, putting a lot of pressure on a lot of people. Just on the gas prices alone, you can see this being this taking place. First of all, I mean, gas gas is an easy thing to put on a credit card. I mean, most people, I think, do pay with the credit card, but I'm guessing that they're paying on credit in a lot of cases and not paying that off on a monthly basis, especially as the prices uh, are rising. There's your vicious cycle right there. Yeah, I mean, and it's 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 going to take a, a probably a long time before we start to see a change in this. A lot of people who are hurt by it. You know, those out there who have uh, loans that might be um, maturing, yeah. they could have been short-term loans, yeah. or whether they're financing a, a commercial property or, a, a you know, a, a building that they were, maybe a construction loan. A lot of those things are, term. they have short terms because, you know, they were designed specifically for a, a certain period of time uh, for someone, and then once that project was completed, they would go out for permanent financing. I'm talking to people today who have come up against the wall when it comes to these uh, these loans that are being pulled because the term is up, the bank wants their money, and unfortunately, the job may not be done yet. And it's really creating a lot of havoc for a lot of people. That's just one aspect of this whole debt crisis that you know the individual consumer is facing, but also, as we talk about all the time, Seth, the country itself, you know, our leaders in Washington can spend a lot worse than the yeah. consumers do. Yeah, no, you that's know? right. So it doesn't help. They're not a good example for us, put it that way. Yeah, they're not a good example, and it seems like it's going to be a long way crawling out of that kind of debt, too, because our economic growth is so mm-hmm. anemic. That was another part of the report that, that we was, kind of got as well, huh? Yes, it was. Uh, you know, under the expected... Uh, growth rate that we have right now, we're never going to get out of it. No, no. Uh, and so we've got to figure out how to be more fiscally responsible as a country with our spending. And ultimately, we need to get this economy back on track to a uh, a more reasonable growth uh, rate and projections so that we can become more, you know, fiscally responsible. But also, it really is uh, important for us as a country uh, to have our, you know, our debt issues handled so that we could be a stronger nation for not only us, but for the rest of the world. Yeah, that's right. We might be able to begin to grow ourselves out of debt at a 3.5% growth rate or higher 
but the CBO is now projecting 1.7. We're just nowhere in the right neighborhood, John. All right, yeah, brother. We're, we're, we're less than 50%. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. No, we're less than 50%. Yeah. yeah. No. Securities and Advisory Services offer the Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finland Shipping and Investment Advisor, Greg Kang, Money Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC, and not affiliated. Great. Thank you. Thanks, yes. John. Okay. Appreciate you. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brett Johnson is a partner with the Snell and Wilmer Law Firm. SWLaw.com is their website. They're based here locally, but offices around the country. And Brett is our constitutional and election law expert. I think we gave him the appellation of the Robert Jackson Fellow in Constitutional Studies on the Seth Liebson Show, which is a mouthful, but Brett always makes things Hi. clear. Hi, How, are How are you? High honor. Obviously one of my favorite justices, so high, yeah. high honor. He, I think he is my favorite. He's the one I tend to end up quoting the most. Him and, um, I don't know, I guess it's 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 probably him and uh, and maybe Frankfurter, oh. maybe Felix Frankfurter. Really? Yeah, in, in, in the modern era, uh, at least because I, I quote him often, it's probably Scalia for me. For you, it's Scalia. That's a good one. That's yeah. a that's a good that's yeah. a good answer for this show, Brett. That's a good answer. <laughs> Why am I quoting Democrats? Someone might ask. Brett's <laughs> quoting Republicans. Brett. Um, okay. So where the law and politics, the bloody crossroads of those um, of those intersections. Uh, there's word that Mr. Trump might, former President Donald Trump, might be uh, brought up on a, more charges again next week in Georgia. So I just thought it might be interesting to have you kind of run down the various legal, criminal legal challenges he's looking at right now and what looks like they're the most saleable or the most worrisome if you're a supporter of Trump, what looks like they hold the most water, where they kind of stand, Florida, Manhattan, Washington, elsewhere. What, what's, your, what's your sense of this range? Yeah, let's let's start with the lesser of them. Uh, there's the one in Manhattan brought by uh, the, the district attorney there, Alvin Bragg. Thirty-four felony charges that relate to um, allegations of hush money, um, but in reality rely on federal election law compliance that were never indicted by the federal government. It's a very convoluted um, case, very novel. And I think most legal commentators believe that that's the biggest of the uphill battles just because of procedural and, and, and the other uh, issues with it. And okay. as I've said here before, if I'm a special prosecutor... for the prosecution, you mean? Uphill prosecution, right. Yeah, and as I've mentioned before, I, I guarantee you the special counsel... Smith is, is really upset about that yeah. one because it just kind of muddied the waters even more so than what, what he brought, which was then the Mar-a-Lago one. Uh, the Mar-a-Lago one uh, dealt with uh, the uh, potential withholding or alleged withholding of uh, confidential classified records um, that were not authorized and should have been sent to the archives. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line there. That, I'll be honest with you, if I, if I had to just base it off of the complaint, because, again, a lot hasn't been known about any of these criminal complaints, is it still in discovery, et cetera. But based off of the complaint, that's probably the easiest one. Don't forget, how did they get Al Capone? They got him on tax evasion based off paper, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And this one's pretty um, interesting, at least how the complaint is. Then you get to um, the more January 6th and election-related cases that uh, Special Counsel brought recently. Um, a little bit more of a harder uphill battle because of some of the First Amendment issues and ability to petition 
um, your legislators, as well as potential double double jeopardy or uh, novel arguments related to the impeachment that occurred post January sixth. So that one, uh, it, it's an interesting one. Um, and if it wasn't just about some of the false statements that were made and some of the other complications I mentioned before, that might be up there with Mar-a-Lago. Then we have the, the Georgia one. Georgia, as many people may remember, was one of the closest uh, um, states in, in the 2020 election. And in, uh, similar allegations that uh, Special Prosecutor uh, Smith brought, in, um, it, but just based purely on Georgia and Georgia law. So there is a little bit of overlap mm-hmm. between what we expect from Georgia and what uh, the special counsel has brought, brought forward, but it's, it's primarily based off of state law. Now, you, many people remember this is not novel. Whenever um, the state has the right to bring cases and the federal has the right to be cases, but in most circumstances, state prosecutors will defer to federal prosecutors. So it's a little abnormal, don't get me wrong, but it's definitely allowed. Okay, fair enough, uh, because of the dual sovereignty doctrine that, that you can have. Exactly. Right, which which is why, for example, OJ could be uh, 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 charged under state law, exonerated or found not guilty, but then federal charges could have been uh, brought Rodney against him. King, Rodney, Rodney King, King was one of the yeah. things right. that right. brought that to light. Yeah, right. exactly. Thank you. The Rodney King one is a better example. Um, Brett, the question that's being bantered about, bantered about is now what kind of restrictions a judge can put on Donald Trump in talking about these cases, uh, protective orders, gag orders. What 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 is the range that a judge can do? It seems to me that itself also has First Amendment implications. It, it does, but a, a judge in this realm, realm has, has wide discretion um, to, to issue kind of gag orders and, and what it is. But there has to be that balancing test there, what is necessary to not taint the jury pool or, or cause uh, basically friction with witnesses not willing to be willing to testify, et cetera. That is going to then have to be outweighed by uh, President Trump's First Amendment rights and being able to speak about whatever he wants, right? But mm-hmm. there, there is the, the, the ability of the government to bring a case and not have um, things be leaked out. I mean, that's probably more the case for the Mar-a-Lago um, situation because that's dealing with classified information. Yeah. A little bit more um, on the, uh, the the special counsel's January 6th charges, too, but that's more dealing with witnesses and who's saying what. But again, an uphill battle, and I, and I imagine that whatever the judge dis- judges decide as to uh, protective orders to protect information, that will be appealed itself. Because we are in such a novel situation where we have a person who is under indictment, who is also running for president, who was the former president. Yeah. I mean, you, you, this is like a law review or a law exam that we, we would never even thought of my third year in law school. No, that's right. And there's yeah. an absurdity attached to a notion of a candidate for public office, never mind the presidency of the office, being barred from... I mean, there is, what, what, whoever side you're on in these things and whatever one thinks of these charges, there is an inherent absurdity in, th- in thinking that you can actually limit or, 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 or legally limit or prohibit a candidate for president from addressing well, the kind of thing that absolutely. he will be attacked on. Or, or exactly, or people in his orbit, right? right so right, there's right. there's uh, there's him, there's his authorities. Right. Those are easy, right. right? You can the judge has restrictions there, right. but campaign staff, campaign right. surrogate, right. other commentators, right. much much harder 
to to be able to control that. In fact, it's probably impossible. I mean, even think about running political ads on these issues. I mean, because there is no question that you will be in a race where people will be attacking uh, attack ads on these very issues that he would be limited from. In this, in the context of a of a of a broad of a broad gag, or he would be limited for the, to, in responding to it. Just seems like an impossibility. It seems like it. That's right. You're you're hitting you're hitting it right on the head. Is that he will be constantly attacked yeah. um, from his opponents on these different issues, yeah. and he's going to say, "I cannot respond because of a gag order," and that's going to be weighed very heavily by the judges and the and the court of appeals, probably up to the Supreme Court. Um, as to as to exactly what happens, but again, the trial judges do have wide they discretion. They do have wide discretion. Yeah. They do, but but they, it, there there are there is a limit. It's just a, what is that limit? Yeah, and 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 if they are appealed, of course, it would also have the have the it would have the result of slowing down the actual criminal trial itself too, right? Yeah, and I don't uh, personally, I would be highly doubtful that all four of these yeah. cases would be done before the election. That was, you anticipated my question. Brett Johnson, you're the best. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You betcha. Talk soon. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Was that Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees? You betcha. Who wrote it? I don't know. Okay, now we've been through this before, young David. Uh-huh. If there's a quote from around the founding and we don't know who wrote it, we don't know the author, best guess is, is you're going to go with Benjamin Franklin, right? What? A quote about the founding. If you don't know who wrote it, your best guess is Benjamin Franklin. When it comes to a popular song of the 60s or 70s and we don't know who wrote it, the Benjamin Franklin of those songs and lyrics would be... Carol King. Carol King. Well done, sir. Well done. Neil Diamond wouldn't be a bad uh, second guess, though. I didn't know he had a big writing career. He wrote for the Monkees, of course. Yes. I, I just didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I'm a believer. You know, uh, yeah, I didn't realize that Neil Diamond wrote that. You think that. he wrote that for Shrek? No, I realized <laughs> you didn't think he Monkeys wrote it. Oh, okay, that, song right, right. Right. <laughs> that was funny. That was funny. What's your pin say today? What's your political pin? Vote for Richard Nixon. Oh yeah, well we got to talk about Richard Nixon today, you bet don't you we? We, do. we got to talk about him because forty nine years ago today he gave one of the most uh, well spoken, well delivered, extemporaneous speeches of the twentieth century. As mm-hmm. I was saying yesterday, up there with probably Bobby Kennedy's speech in Indianapolis on Martin Luther King's passing. All, you know, it's an odd Greek tragic thing about rhetoric, that the best rhetoric is over lacrimal issues, sad moments, you know? Um, and you think about that with regard to Bobby Kennedy. Think about that with regard to Richard Nixon. Um, I don't—I mean, it obviously wasn't extemporaneous, but one of Ronald Reagan's greatest speeches, of course, was over the Challenger disaster. We still remember that, of course. Um, it's there's something about Greek tragedy and rhetoric. There's something Bob about tragedy. The, uh, the Nixon century, didn't he, at his funeral in 1994? Yeah, yeah. Bob Dole said, "If yeah. there's one man that the century will be named after, it should be called the Nixon century." He's not wrong. I mean, there's few people I can think of who steered so much for good and ill in the latter half of the 20th century. You think about how big Richard Nixon loomed. Uh, obviously. Uh, the the Alger Hiss Whitaker Chambers hearings and the House on American Activities Committee. He was front and center on that. 
Um, obviously, um, his vice presidency, which was fairly unremarkable but had interesting civil rights implications, his presidency itself, for good and for ill, you know, and what it all stood for. Every scandal that we now attach the word gate to, we don't even think about anymore, but that was him. Um, Roe versus Wade, yeah. you know, his, ju- his Supreme Court justices, OSHA, EPA, affirmative action, um, China. I mean, these are not small things. It's a mixed things. bag. Huh? It's, it's a very mixed bag. I read this But morning, it's not a small bag. Huh? I read this morning that uh, on his last day in office, yeah. Dr. Kissinger went up to Nixon and said, history will remember you as one of the great ones. And President Nixon said, it depends who writes the history. Yeah, interesting. Kissinger also said, well, there's a lot we'll say about what Kissinger said about Nixon. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.